Let's open our Bibles as we continue in worship and look on God's Word. We're in the New Testament. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning, we'll welcome those who are watching live uh, by internet live stream. Uh, Welcome. It's good to have someone watching. And if you're watching later, that's fine too. Uh, We hope to keep sermons online for review and sharing at large. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And we'll put it in context as we work through this letter. And we'll understand what the Lord has to say to us today. And just a heads up, it's a, it's a challenging text before us today, talking about covenants, and it uses bold language describing the old covenant under Moses. But we'll see here that God is speaking that we might have joy, boldness, and freedom under the new covenant. I pray he makes that plain. Let's hear God's word, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thus far we read in God's word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. I'm uh, old enough to remember learning to write my date. And I remember writing dates 1960-something. And then when we got to 1970, boy, that was a big change. You had to change the... Two numbers, 1970 and then 1980 got a little easier. And if you know me, I often would write A.D. after the year, especially once I became a Christian because I wanted to remember it's the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. And here we are in 2021. We're months away from 2022. And sometimes my head is just spinning with the passing of time. But can you imagine the significance that even the way we mark our years puts on Jesus. Do you know that all of history, according to modern academic and historians and record keeping, divides history into B.C. and A.D.? 2,021 years, so to speak, from the birth of Christ. And then we count that ancient history with the numbers that go down as they get closer to the birth of Jesus. So you have things like Moses, maybe uh, 1,400 years before Christ, or 1,200, depending on how your math works out. And, and then David and his reign, 1,000 years before Christ. And then that day in Bethlehem, in the midpoint of all history, 
The culmination, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, B.C. and A.D. Because Jesus came into this world, everything has changed in terms of hope, in terms of our understanding who we are and who God is. Our understanding of how God worked B.C. and A.D. is also important. Because the Bible is not only divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament, but God operated by his grace in the world among people under an old covenant and then under a new covenant. Something very significant changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's behind what Paul is talking about in this letter. Paul is writing again, he's written a few times, to this church in Corinth, a church that he planted. He first shared about Jesus, people believed, and a church grew, became pretty big after a while, had multiple leaders and some factions, it had a lot of spiritual gifts, a lot was going on, culture was invading it, and I think as it grew, it also attracted some opponents to the gospel who came in to trouble the Christians with alternate Gospels and alternate ideas about how the Christian life should be lived. And to that church, Paul writes, and part of his argument in this chapter is this section before saying, we have to keep clear the differences between the old covenant that Moses introduced and the new covenant that Paul preached that Jesus secured by his life, death, and resurrection. That's kind of the broad overview. Paul is bringing clarity. And I hope you'll be able to track along. That's one reason we put a sermon note sheet in your program so you can follow where we're going. But by the time we're done looking at this text, I want you to be able to answer those three questions at the end. Very significant questions for you today. Let's take a look first at discerning covenants and messengers. Let's put this in context a little bit more. Uh, The first comment I want to make is that there were opponents at Corinth. In this church that uh, Paul had founded, people came in and were teaching other things, and they said, you know, Paul, he's not really even one of the original 12 apostles. I don't know what to make of him. He's kind of weak, kind of homely. You listen to him. I don't know. They were picking on Paul in serious ways, not only on his person, his weakness, And the hardships he's faced, and they used those things to impugn his message, they outrightly attacked his theology. And we don't know a lot about the opponents, but they seem to be people that were promoting Moses and promoting Judaism. Most likely Jewish Christians of some mixture. They seem to have come from Jerusalem, crossed all the way Uh, the the Mediterranean world to Corinth to check up on this new church. Well, let us tell you a few things Paul didn't tell you. You should still be circumcised. You should still eat the kosher foods. You got to do these things with the fabrics and all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and civil laws. It seemed to be the Galatians problem all over again, perhaps. But at the point of their argument says, you know, we're we're not like this newcomer. We... uh, We're talking about Moses here. and We all know Moses. We don't know Paul. They may have viewed Paul as this upstart peddling a novel version of Judaism. Whereas Paul in this passage earlier in the chapter talked that he's not like the peddlers that are even now at work in Corinth. So there were opponents there and the opponents were kind of pointing to Moses. Moses was their trump card. Kind of like if you're conservative in these days in American politics, you might point to, oh, well, I remember this president. He was the conservative standard bearer. And you drop his name or you say, oh, I've read this book. We all all appeal to certain people that seem to carry weight with our posse. And these people were pointing at Moses. And and Paul, even as we ended last week in verse 6, understands that he's under attack and they're questioning his sufficiency and Paul makes this comment in chapter 3 verse 6 who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant who who am I 
to come and, 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 and walk past Moses into something new? He knows those are big sandals to fill. He says, um, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he had said in verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. Paul loved Moses. Paul will see Moses in glory or has seen Moses in glory as we will if we are believers. But Paul says, I am commissioned by not just a prophet, I am commissioned by the Son of God to bring this gospel to the world and to Gentiles. So Paul, the former PhD student in Hebrew under the leading teachers is now a missionary to Gentiles with good news for them. And he tells them they don't need to come by way of Moses to be right with God through Jesus. And as Paul writes here, he's talking about things carved in stone, a ministry of death. He's got some tough language here. And then this thing about veiling your face. Let's take a quick look at the context. Moses in Mount Sinai. Let's turn to the book of Exodus. If you don't know where Exodus is in your Bible, it's number two. First comes Genesis, then Exodus. As you're turning um, towards Exodus 34, let me just highlight a couple of things as you're turning. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. Those happened at Mount Sinai. The people that left Egypt crossed the wilderness Moses brought them to Mount Sinai to worship God, to meet with God, and to set up this covenant with God. We call it the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the one who went up the mountain and got the tablets, brought them down. The Ten Commandments, you should know all about that in Exodus 20. There were other laws that came with it beyond uh, uh, just the Ten Commandments. There were many laws about how to do the Sabbath, how to do this, how to do that. When you pass by Exodus 20. Uh, the golden calf is in here too am I missing the chapter the people having just received all these laws from Moses uh, about uh, how things are going to be set up and the, um, you get to chapter 32 is the golden calf we're going to take a quick look at chapter 34 and to put it in context as I tried to do just now God gave his law He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to worship. This is how it's going to be. And yet they didn't live up to that. And pretty soon they had the golden calf and were in outright rebellion. Instead of worshiping the one true and living God, they're worshiping this golden calf. And because they're breaking God's law, many will die. The wages of sin is death. And with the golden calf, there was the breaking of the earlier tablets. So the Lord says in Exodus 34, The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon the mountain. So, verse 4, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai and the Lord, as the Lord commanded him and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Jehovah, all capitals, L-O-R-D. The Lord, Jehovah, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He goes on. God is going to introduce himself afresh to Moses and give two new tablets. At the end of the chapter, let's drop down to verse 27 and see how the chapter ends. Moses on the mountain getting the law The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Verse 27. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread or drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called them to him, called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. There we go. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people what he was was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You see, that's the background. Well known to the Jews. People said, oh, Moses, he was impressive. He was with God and his very face was so shiny he had to wear a veil. And I thought and prayed because here in 2021, everybody has had the experience of wearing masks. And I don't want to connect the masks with the veil. It's different. But we know, at least from wearing masks, that it obscures the face. You can't even see someone smiling. I remember in the early days going into the grocery store and and seeing everybody masked and feeling a little nervous because in the past it was robbers that wore masks into public stores. In the ancient world, this veil was to obscure and prevent the vision of something that was so glorious. Indeed, it was shiny and blinding. Moses wore a veil on his face for a season because that glory would fade. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is dealing with some people troubling the church. And he's going to talk now about the differences in these covenants. And he's going to use some tough language. He's going to make reference to things that are true about the law and the veil and glory. But let me ask, why was the church at Corinth even drawn to any talk about Moses? If Paul had planted a Christian church, what was drawing them back to Moses? They had believed on Christ. They were worshiping Christ. They had the Lord's Supper. They had baptism. They were reading the letters of Paul as scripture. What would draw them back to Moses? Well, we know in the chapter, sometimes the messenger makes a difference. Paul didn't seem very impressive. So let's remember a a messenger who was impressive. Or perhaps it was the appeal of of the old covenants laws and rules where you could just have it in black and white, do this, don't do that. And there's something appealing in human nature to having rules and, and clarity and, and to have a grasping for righteousness that you could achieve for yourself. You could check off, yeah, I did this sacrifice, I didn't do that, I ate the right thing, I wore the right thing, I didn't work on Sunday, or all those things. They have an appeal. Derek Prime tells us as well about what was most appealing to people in antiquity. He says it this way. If for modern people the problem with Christianity is its antiquity, it's old, the problem people had back then was Christianity's novelty. People of those times venerated the past. So for a new teacher to come into Corinth, he would get a hearing. He would be appealing because he's talking about good old Moses and the past. I think we have to be concerned with what our hearts might be drawn to that might compete with the Christianity we've received. I don't think we're like the Corinthians that we love the past. Most Modern believers don't know the past. You're not drawn into it unless you're a history buff. But we are drawn into other things. 
And I think those who come into our midst with their false teachings, what competes with the gospel is, is, a, is a gospel of uh, therapy, of feelings. We're a feelings-oriented world. The facts of history weigh less than one's own feelings. So in our day, what competes with the gospel and things Paul would share practically come from within. And we should be aware of that. But let's continue looking a little bit further at what Paul says about the two covenants. And we'll try to do it in summary fashion here. Uh, First, the blunt assessment of the old covenant, then his glowing words for the new covenant. Um, Blunt assessment. The language almost troubles us, the way Paul speaks of our beloved old covenant. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Wait wait a minute, Paul, are you talking about the Ten Commandments? Ministry of death? That's, That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Paul's not just name-calling. Paul even talks about it as a ministry of condemnation in verse 9. Why this blunt assessment of the Old Covenant? Yes, he is talking about the Mosaic Covenant when he talks about carved in stone. We can think of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. We know what he's talking about. But why this description... Well, the Bible itself teaches us that through the law, God's holy commands, the revelation of his holy nature, sin is revealed. We know something is sinful because God's word says it's sinful. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Uh Uh-oh. All of a sudden, we're convicted that I did that and I have my sin identified. The law brings us a knowledge of sin. There was a glory in the law. It was from God. God's own finger carving on the stone. Whenever God speaks and reveals himself, some of his glory comes as well. But it was not a permanent glory because God was going to build on that covenant with a future covenant. And they're related. One lays the groundwork for the other. So this ministry of death, poignant words if they're thinking of Moses in Mount Sinai, because at Mount Sinai there was the golden calf and thousands that had come out of Pharaoh's Egypt, died at the foot of Mount Sinai because of the golden calf and their sin. So sin and God saying what's right and wrong had consequences, namely death, condemnation and death. The soul that sins shall die. So Paul speaks this way about the old covenant, not because he's trying to put it down, but he's clarifying its purpose. You know the purposes of the law? I actually learned it from a friend rather than in seminary. He had that succinct way of putting it. The law is God's revelation of his holy being, so it defines holiness. Righteousness and sin is clarified by the law of God. It also shows us that we're sinful and we fall short. And it also shows us our Savior, the one who perfectly kept the law of God. Only one person ever did that, Jesus. They could find nothing in Jesus where he had broken the law. They had to come up with some false witnesses. In his years on earth, in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ never once sinned. We know that because he kept God's law. And the law still has purpose for the Christian. Because when we come to Christ, we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Jesus says, well, as my disciples, as my followers, as children of God, live in a way that pleases God. How is that? Jesus sends us to the law to know what's right and wrong. So there is an ongoing usefulness to the moral law. But its glory has been eclipsed. 
Because it's not the law that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. The law has permanent value. God God carved it himself in stone. The Ten Commandments are for today, but they're not a way of salvation. They play a purpose. Paul would say in Romans 7, even as he wrestles with how the law shows him his sin, he says the law is holy. Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Even though it points out sin in me. You get down for your devotions and you think, oh, I don't have anything to confess. It's a good day. Lord, I have nothing to confess. Uh, reread the Ten Commandments. Think it through. It will show you. It's a, God's word is a mirror to ourselves. But Paul uses this blunt language to remind the people in Corinth, you go back to Moses, you go back to that, that's not going to accomplish what you think it will. That's not going to give you power over sin. Only Christ can do that. So let's look. He has this glowing assessment of the new covenant. He calls it the ministry of the spirit. One that comes with even more glory. Well, there was a lot of glory at Sinai. You're saying more glory? More glory in Christ. In the spirit that Christ sends. Let me pause and comment on a couple of phrases here in verse 17 and then in verse 18. It says, uh, um, the Lord is the spirit in verse 17. And in verse 18, the Lord who is the spirit. That's a complicated and challenging expression. It's not simply saying uh, uh, that uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are identical. We know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, the Bible teaches. What Paul is using by that phrase with the Jewish-leaning listeners, remember he's trying to help them, he's saying this Jesus of the New Covenant is Lord. And using the word Lord reminded them of Jehovah of the Old Testament. And he says, not just Jesus, humanly speaking, brought the new covenant, but Jesus as the divine being, the Spirit of God. So he's making a Trinitarian comment as he writes, don't think of Jesus merely in his incarnation humanity. Okay, back to the glowing words for the new covenant. Paul uses logic here. He goes from the lesser to the greater. If this ministry that only made people feel guilty and see their sin is laid aside, this ministry of the Spirit, which shows us good news and hope and a provision for our sin, that's more glorious. He uses this logical argument from the lesser to the greater. And he says in verse 9, this new ministry is not a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry of righteousness. We know from Romans 1, uh, the gospel is good news, for in it, the righteousness of God is proclaimed in the gospel. In what Romans and the rest of the Bible tell us that God saves us because of the righteousness of Christ granted, imputed to believers. By faith, we grasp the righteousness of Christ. The law shows us our shortcomings and it tells us what to obey and what to do as if we could be righteous on our own, but we can't. Instead, the law drives us to the conclusion that we need Christ. So it's a ministry of righteousness, a ministry of the Spirit. And it fulfills those Old Testament passages in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah that we looked last week at, uh, which said, I will make a new covenant. I will write it on your hearts. The believer gets the Holy Spirit to help us. So there's a difference here between that which was written on stone, which is true and lasting, except its glory was not the same as the good news and the work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the new covenant surpasses the old. Isn't that what we read here in verses 10 and 11? As Paul finishes this paragraph, he says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. 
because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The new covenant surpasses the old. It doesn't say the old was wrong or, or wicked or anything bad. No, God used it and still uses his law to bring conviction of sin. But God builds and offers a new covenant. Even as Jesus said at the Last Supper as he raised the cup, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. Jesus enters into a new covenant on our behalf. I like this word surpasses, hyperballo. You might almost think of hyperbolistic in English. It's used five times in the New Testament. It's used twice here in Corinthians, and then it's used in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And there the translation varies, whether it's immeasurable, surpassing. It means uh, to, to go beyond, to overshoot, to surpass, to exceed. Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Ephesians 2.7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. When we receive the gospel, our cup overflows. God surpasses whatever we could accomplish by trying to be law keepers ourselves. And when Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.19, he prayed that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a permanence to this work as it surpasses the old covenant. He's hammering away so the people in Corinth will hear that. And he goes on, verse 12 through 18 at the end here. He says there are all sorts of new covenant blessings. And we can count at least four. Let's do that. First, he starts out with boldness. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What does Paul mean by boldness? He means boldness. He he, he, can, he, can, he can speak and he can live with, with clarity and conviction in the eyes of everyone. Moses had, had to be veiled. And, and not that Moses ever obscured. Moses was faithful. Moses was an outstanding man of God. But Paul, Paul talks about a boldness in his ability to represent the new covenant. One resource said, Moses had a remarkable encounter with the presence of God, but the new covenant believer's access is even more astoundingly complete. We may come boldly into the presence of God. Remember in the old covenant, who got to go into the tent and meet with God? It was only Moses. We have an immediacy of access. How dare you walk in here? Not for the Christian. Jesus says, ask whatever you want of the Father in my name. What? Really? Boldness. I think Christian boldness is seen not only in proclaiming what we know to be true, but in our prayer life. We have a boldness. In the past, you had to find the high priest and make your inquiry. You could cry out to the Lord, but God had this system. And how could he be approached but through the sacrificial system and the structures of the old covenant? We may now come boldly into the presence of God because of our high priest, Jesus. So prayer shows our boldness. Our testimony, our witness shows our boldness. Hebrews 10.19 talks about uh, this boldness uh, Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he goes on to talk about what we should do. We have a boldness and a confidence based on Jesus, the blood of Jesus, based on the new covenant. Christian, do you know your access, your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ stands on the new covenant. And we should have boldness. I like reading the book of Acts and seeing how Peter and John are now kind of bold. A lot of people ran away in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they're not running anywhere now. And uh, they were even observed in Acts chapter 4. 
after they gave testimony to the, to the ruling council. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do you have any of that boldness? Have you benefited from the blood of Jesus under the new covenant that comes and changes you and claims you and commissions you? Do you have any boldness to stand when falsehoods are brought against the truth? Silver and gold have I done, but what I have I give to you. Listen up, I have good news for you. I don't have answers to every problem, but this I know. I was blind and now I see. Believer, where is your boldness? There's another new covenant blessing. We are unveiled. Our perception is opened. You believe because God opened your eyes. You fled to Jesus or prayed to receive Jesus uh, like I did 40-some years ago at the foot of my bed on my knees asking God to make me a Christian. I only pursued Christ because God opened my eyes to Christ. He removed the veil. And there is here in this paragraph a section we don't have a lot of time to talk about, how the Jews, when they read Moses, when they read the Old Testament, the veil still remains. Let me just point out, the veil is not physical. The veil is not even intellectual. The veil is moral. As Kent Hughes says, it is a heart veil. And the Jews can read the Old Testament, they can hear something of Jesus as Messiah, and the veil over their heart keeps them from believing. That's why we pray for God to be at work in our unsaved loved ones, that he would pull back the veil and they would see Jesus. That they wouldn't dismiss Christianity because they see us and our imperfections. Open their eyes, Lord. May they see Jesus. Paul prays for believers to have the eyes of their heart further enlightened. Covenant blessing number three, freedom. Freedom, I love this word, not just because I'm a fan of, of uh, uh, the, the movie Braveheart and the end the heroes crying, freedom! He's got his kilt on and Scotland's trying to get free of the English, have their own country, and he yells, freedom! It's political freedom. Here we're talking about spiritual freedom. Do you see what it says here? Um, The Lord is the Spirit, verse 17, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. Jesus had said, John 8, 36 records it, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Meaning free from the heart, free before God, your maker. You will be set free in the new birth to be a child of God. And no CDC pronouncement can change that. No governor can restrict your access to God if you are born again. You have a spiritual freedom. They may lock up your body, but they cannot lock up your heart and mind. A freedom, spiritual liberty. The same term comes up in Galatians because Paul's saying, oh, you Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's trying to draw you back into Moses? Galatians 2.4 says, because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery Do you see the language Paul uses there? You've got to be wary of people who would add to the gospel their own agenda, even if it's Moses' old agenda that they're trying to bring now and put on Christians. Paul says you don't need that. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
We don't have to keep the law for our salvation. We don't have to keep the Jewish ceremonial and civil laws because we're not under that covenant. We have a spiritual freedom. We worship neither at that mountain or at this mountain, Jesus said to the woman at the well, John 4. A day is coming when God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. And there's a fourth new covenant blessing that's mentioned here. Do you see it? Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, isn't it great to be unveiled? Isn't it great to perceive God and his word and have the relationship with him? Unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, seeing how he works, who he is. We are being transformed. That's the covenant blessing. We're not only free. You know, if you have a week's vacation, you're free to do something, but you might not be able to afford much. We have spiritual freedom and we're being enabled to be like Christ. We're being transformed. We're actually changed. The old covenant couldn't change anyone. The old covenant just said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And oh, how do I battle my lust and my impulses? The law just drew the lines. It's the gospel that gives us a new heart. And we feel this would grieve the Lord. And we have the help of the Lord and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we are being transformed. We are being strengthened to say no to sin. The Spirit is forming us after Christ. Sanctification is underway. What does the transformation look like? Well, you should be growing the fruit of the Spirit. People should be able to see in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. They should see something of Christ in you. You're different. I long to have people say that to me for the right reason. If no one's ever noticed your Christianity, what's with that? Now, we we don't live to draw attention to ourselves. But we so live and we so obey Christ that men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. They'll make the connection. Transformation. Blessings from the new covenant. Which things that were out of reach of the old covenant, but that wasn't the design. The old covenant laid the foundation with God's moral law. And the new covenant, Christ fulfills and procures for us. So here are the three closing questions. I mentioned at the start that if we've studied this, you should be able to answer these questions. Or these questions will make more sense. Question number one, has the veil lifted for you? Has God pulled back that veil of unbelief and self-centeredness? Has he opened your heart and mind to the gospel of who Jesus is? Or are you still seeking, still groping, still wondering, and, and you can't quite get your handle on it? That's fine to be there, but don't stay there. Continue to pursue Christ. Lord, give me understanding. I'm just not sure There's plenty of people, me and others, that would like to help you address your legitimate questions. Because God brings you through the means of preaching and teaching and making the gospel known. Paul had to wrestle with some folks so that they would believe. He had to present Christ continually and explain that. Has the veil lifted for you? It's something God does. You can ask it. Lord, lift the veil. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me the truth of the gospel. Lord, show me your son, Jesus Christ. What difference he makes to me. Very simple prayer. Second question, can you distinguish, this one's tough, can you distinguish law and gospel? We haven't talked about this in in some time here at our church, in our fellowship. And law and gospel are not enemies. They're teammates. 
But can you distinguish, if somebody comes in here and says, well, to be a real Christian, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and they're bringing a little legalism on you, can you distinguish that from gospel? This might be an area where you need to do more reading, more study, and pursue these things to work through certain passages of the Scripture. It was a danger for the church in Corinth. They were being tempted. People were trying to add to the gospel. It had to be clearly seen. Well, no, the law has this purpose. The gospel does that for me. In other words, I'm not going to pursue my own righteousness by the law in order to be right with God. But because I'm right with God, I'm going to turn to the law to know what's right and wrong. You remember how Jesus summed up the law? Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second greatest command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do I love my neighbor? By stealing his tractor? No. Why? Well, the law says don't steal. How do I love my neighbor? By telling him some lies, flattering him? No. We love our neighbor by keeping the commands of God. Following the moral Standards he sets forth. How do we love God? No, I, I worship God by walking in the woods and putting my toes in the stream. Well, God's word has a few more things to say about worship than that. You can be thankful for creation. But God says we worship in spirit and in truth. You can't come to the Father apart from Jesus Christ. So can you distinguish between law and gospel? Or to put it in a whole different set of terms, can you distinguish between moralism and amazing grace? May the Lord help us to live uprightly and keep the law, but to rest on the righteousness of Christ and live by grace. The third and closing question is, is the power of the gospel transforming you? That's where Paul left us at the end of this passage, that's where he leaves the Corinthians. If this is all happening, if this new covenant is blessing you, you're going to be changed. I hate to say it, there's a plant in the office. Uh, Marion's not here this morning. There's a plant in the office that is no longer green and thriving. It's in one of those little bell jar terrariums. It's kind of flat to the soil and kind of brown. It's dead. It's stopped growing. And it started decaying. You can see if something's alive. What about you? What about your spiritual life? Is the power of the gospel transforming you? Is there spiritual fruit growing in you? Do you have more strength today against sin and temptation than you did yesterday? Do you have any more holiness about you. We don't talk this way normally, but maybe it's about time we look for signs of growth and transformation. Sometimes that comes when somebody points out your short-temperedness or your self-centeredness. Is the power of the gospel transforming you? In our broken world, our neighbors need us to live the Christian life clearly, boldly, publicly, and graciously. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that addresses things that we need to know about how to practice our faith in you, not by external law-keeping as much as giving our hearts and minds to Christ Father, thank you for lifting the veil in my heart and mind. And if there be any here, Lord, that are seeking you, lift the veil, we pray. Among our unsaved loved ones, lift the veil. Make yourself known in power and in beauty and in glory. Yes, you are a holy God. But Father, show them your grace and mercy as well. Father, we pray that uh, your wood, word would bear fruit in us this day and this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.